This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word. Father, we're so thankful that we had this time, this opportunity to focus upon your word, recognizing that as you have revealed yourself down through the centuries, you have done it in such a way as to uh, give us not everything in one place or at one time, but that you have built your word upon previous revelation and that we should study these things as they have been revealed uh, down through the ages, that one part of Scripture enhances, expands, confirms another part of Scripture. All this gives great testimony to the authenticity of your word and that it is what it claims to be, which is your very thinking and your, the expression of your thinking to us, that we might come to know you and come to live in a way in this world that conforms to reality and not to our own ideas or concepts, which in effect is nothing more than fantasy. So, Father, we pray that as we reflect upon your word today that it gives us insight, encouragement, and strength, and we come to a better understanding of, of how we are to live within our families. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in uh, Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3 and uh, following, and um, we're studying on this principle of the family. started off with the role and responsibilities of men, then roles and responsibilities of women, uh, wives, excuse me, started with wives, then with husbands, and now dealing with children and parents. And so as we uh, get into this particular text, it is important for us to understand uh, just a few of the important uh, ramifications of this and how it relates across the board to um, other things that are taught in the Scriptures. Basic passage is Colossians 3, 20 and 21. Colossians 3, 20 and 21 focusing on the uh, children obeying your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Notice, as I keep going through this, that each of these admonitions focuses uh, back on the relationship with the Lord, not always in Colossians, but if you compare the Colossians and Ephesians passages, the ultimate motivation in every area has to do with, uh, has to do with the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So here together, as I'm focusing on this, we see the, the real matrix of life is biblically is what happens inside the home, the marriage and then the family. These are the second and third divine institutions that come out of Genesis chapter 2, focusing on God's provision for prosperities. We've studied the divine institutions in the past. We have seen that these are uh, social structures, social mandates that, and social laws that God built into uh, the human race, built into society. These are not options. These are not things that can be um, Removed or separated from their relationship to every other area of society. I pointed out last time that what you hear in recent elections, the development of uh, 
uh, things within politics over the last 20 to 30 years is somehow uh, you can separate uh, social beliefs from economic beliefs. But the Bible doesn't affirm that at all. The Bible doesn't validate that, how, uh, the, how the society functions impacts economics. If we break down uh, these divine institutions, if they fail, they will have drastic economic consequences. You cannot separate the two. You can't biblically come, come out and say, well, I'm a social liberal and I'm, a polit- and I'm an economic conservative. The Bible doesn't give you that kind of, a, that kind of an option. Uh, the health of the family is foundational to the health of society. We could even go so far as to say that the how goes the family, so goes the nation. When you have marital breakdown and failure and you have family breakdown and failure, that will ultimately, ultimately lead to national breakdown and failure because what we see in the Scripture is that the, the cocoon for training and education of the next generation is the family. And it is the health or the disease in that family that prepares the next generation. Now, that doesn't deny uh, individual volition. It's interesting as you study history that sometimes volition seems to have a generational impact. There are generations that seem to be much more positive than other generations. There are some generations in history, for example, the generation that came out of Egypt, the generation of Jews that came out of, of Israel, uh, came out of Egypt in the, uh, in the Exodus, seem to be very negative in their obedience to God. They disobeyed him. They were constantly complaining and bickering when they were in the wilderness, looking back to what they thought was a happier, secure life back in, back in Egypt. They were negative, and they brought discipline, divine discipline upon that nation, and that generation had to be uh, destroyed all but two, had to die in the wilderness before the Israelites could enter into the promised land. That next generation, the conquest generation, was a generation that grew up under the divine discipline uh, on their parents' generation in the wilderness, and they demonstrated great trust and faith in God as they entered into the land. So you had a one generation that was predominantly negative and the next generation predominantly positive. I've seen other periods of time in history and other nations where this kind of thing takes place. It's an interesting uh, phenomena. God doesn't reveal anything about it, so it's just an interesting observation that we should, uh, uh, should note. But I think, and that does show that even within a home, for example, in the Exodus generation, there's a negative generation. They failed in many ways. Because they failed spiritually in many ways, I would think it's a fair uh, conclusion that they probably failed as parents. Yet their children demonstrated positive volition. So just because parents are failures doesn't necessarily mean that their children will be spiritual failures because the children ultimately have their own volition. On the other hand, you have generations where the parents are positive, but the generation that comes up after them are negative. And this may not be due to the parents' failures at all. The parents may do many things that are right, but that next generation, for whatever reason, uh, usually related to factors uh, apart from the uh, what's going on in the home, that next generation comes up and they exercise negative volition. They reject the values of their parents, and this seems to run throughout an entire, uh, an entire generation. So it's not all on the parents. So I say that because I know a lot of parents who have done everything they believed was right and that they could in rearing their children, and yet their children rejected their values, rejected their uh, emphasis on the Word of God and Bible doctrine, and ended up becoming very hostile and rebellious. And the parents then put the guilt upon themselves that it was their fault. 
Uh, I'm not saying it's not, but it doesn't necessarily so. There can be many other factors other than the parents, but the parents set the framework. They set a particular course, and that's the vital role that parents play as we will see in the passages that we're looking at today. So in these, in this, these two verses, focus on the responsibility of children and parents. The word fathers here is also a word that is used of, of parents. Uh, children, obey your, your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In Ephesians 6, this is expanded a little bit, as I pointed out last time. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long in the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Very important, very significant passage. Now, a couple of things I want to point out about the first verse, talking about children obeying your parents and honoring your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, as I pointed out. Contextually, there was also within the Mosaic Law in, uh, in Exodus that if parents... Uh, if the children were disobedient, if the children were disrespectful and uh, exceeded a certain level of disrespect, then within the Mosaic law, uh, they could be uh, taken out and were to be stoned as juvenile delinquents. And the reason was is because if they failed to learn respect for authority, if they failed to learn how to be a, a, a respectful member of society, then that was viewed as a like a malignant disease within the body of the of the nation, and they were to be removed. It was uh, criminal action and punishable by death. This shows the significance of parental training to, in preserving the spiritual health of a nation. So that's part of why there's that promise of life that if you honor your father and mother, you'll live long. Because if you're disrespectful then you would come under uh, the uh, laws for capital punishment. But there's another aspect to this that I wanted to bring out, and that is that this concept of honor indicates uh, humility and indicates respect for, uh, for parents. And as you grow up, as a child grows up, the parents are responsible for training that young child so that they learn respect for authority, respect for others, respect for others' property. It is fundamental to humility to be able to submit to authority because as we grow up, we come under all manner of different kinds of authority. Nobody is a law unto themselves unless, and if they are, then you'd see the consequences from that. There are many failures who are that way because they're arrogant and they just don't want to submit uh, to anyone else's authority. So parents are to train their children to show respect and to show honor and respect for their parents. This is extremely important because as children grow up into adulthood, then when the son becomes an adult and he enters into a marriage or the daughter grows up to be uh, an adult and enters into marriage as a wife, then they have certain uh, responsibilities towards one another. The wife is to submit to her husband. Well, if she hasn't learned authority orientation as a child, then it's too late to learn it when she gets married. If the son has not learned authority, orientation, and humility as a child, then when he becomes a husband and a father, a leader, it's a difficult lesson to learn at that point. A good leader also is a good follower. The reason is is because to be a good leader, you have to recognize your own limitations. You have to have humility. And if you haven't learned humility as a child, you enter into adulthood operating on arrogance, and the result is going to be disastrous in all of your relationships. You know, it's a general rule of thumb that is, that is accurate. If you, you watch 
young people. You watch a prospective uh, wife, a prospective husband, and you observe certain relationships in their life, and that will tell you a lot about their potential success as a husband or as a wife. Look at how they relate to pets. That's one thing that's uh, interesting is to see how people uh, relate to their animals, to their pets, the ones they love, how they show love for pets. tells a lot about how they will show love for others. But uh, something that is even more instructive is to see how, uh, uh, how adult sons and adult daughters relate to their parent of the opposite sex that says a lot about how they relate to, will relate to their future spouse. A son that is, uh, that honors and respects his, uh, his mother will probably be one who honors and respects his wife. A son that is disrespectful of his mother and does not honor her is probably going to be a husband that is not respectful of his wife. A daughter that is not respectful and honoring of her father is probably not going to be respectful and honoring of her husband when things get difficult, when there's conflict. Uh, the, and one, a daughter that understands that authority relationship and honors and respects her father is one that will also honor and respect their um, their spouse. And so this is a good barometer. Children need to learn humility, and they learn to be trained so that um, this becomes a significant part of their life. Now, when we get into the Old Testament, we learn a lot about the background of how parents are to implement this. And there's a couple of verses within the chapter in Proverbs I read this morning that we need to take a little time to think about. They are very popular verses with parents, and they are often misunderstood and misapplied, especially this first one that we're going to look look at. I want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Now, one of the things we should always remember about the book of Proverbs is that this is the instruction of a father to his son. And this is important. As we talk about the family, I think that an important thing that you can do, if I talk to those of you who are fathers or maybe grandfathers, is you can do do a little exercise with your uh, sons or grandsons, and that is to read through the book of Proverbs and to categorize the proverbs, They're, the proverbs are not uh, proverbs aren't written like other books of the scripture where there's a context. Now there are parts of proverbs that are that way. First seven or eight chapters are that that way. They generally focus on uh, broad themes and large chunks of uh, of those chapters relate to the same theme. But for a majority of the book of Proverbs, you simply have these these one verse or in some cases two verse sayings that represent a a wise principle. And so sometimes it talks about money, sometimes it talks about leadership, sometimes it talks about parenting, sometimes it talks about um, different uh, issues of spirituality or, or morality, and it talks about work, it talks about how you handle money, Many different things. So you can go through the book of Proverbs and you can categorize these and list all of the verses that deal with each particular uh, theme. And this could be an exercise that's done in the family that can be used for family Bible study Teach as you teach and train your children. Now, when you come to this verse, Proverbs 22.6, this is one of a number of verses in Proverbs that focuses on uh, child training. But this is a verse that has a couple of problems with it, and it is often uh, misquoted and misused, and it becomes a disappointment to many parents because they think it means something that it doesn't mean. If you read it in almost any translation, it translates the main verb as with the English word train. Unfortunately, that's not what the word means in the Hebrew. 
So the first problem that you have is that there's a poor, poor translation here at the very beginning. The second problem that we have is a misunderstanding of the nature of Proverbs. Now, even what I'm, what I'm saying next is debated some among some of the foremost scholars of Proverbs. But a proverb is a wise saying. And a wise saying is something that is true most of the time. But it's not a promise. A promise is when God says, if you do X, I will do Y. For example, if you confess your sins, God says, I will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is a specific promise. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That is a specific promise. If you do X, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God will do Y. He will save you. Now, that's that's a promise. Now, a promise is not a proverb. A proverb is, is stating that if you generally follow these principles, then you will generally get these results. But there are promises in the Proverbs, I'm, excuse me, there are, there are Proverbs that focus on, for example, working hard and working diligently and storing up and saving treasure for the hard times in the future. But what if you are just entering into the workforce during a time of Great Depression? What if you are someone living in a uh, communist country, for example, Soviet Russia in the 30s? No matter how diligently you apply these economic principles in Proverbs, you're not going to, as a Christian in 1930s Soviet Russia, you're not going to experience the kind of prosperity that the verse suggests that you will because there are extenuating circumstances. And you may have a greater degree of prosperity than you would have otherwise because you're applying those principles, but you would not have the kind of prosperity that you may think you're getting because you're not living in that kind of an environment. You're in a, you can be in a situation, any of us can be in a situation where we're under, undergoing suffering uh, or adversity by association, and because of the decisions of a federal government, because of the decisions of uh, someone close to us, no matter how right we do some things, we may not get the results that we think the proverb says we should get. That's why it's a proverb not a promise. It's stating what will be true in most cases and most scenarios. So you have a proverb here on training up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I can tell you how many times I have talked with parents who have latched onto this as they have seen their 18, 19, 20-year-olds today completely reject everything that the parents have taught them everything that they have learned in, in Sunday school and in church, and they have become atheists, they have become agnostic, they have just absolutely dumped everything related to Christianity, and they're pursuing their own life in rebellion, and they hold on to this as if I trained him up right, they're going to come back. Generally speaking, that's true. It's not a promise. Don't hold on to it like a promise. The word train up is the Hebrew word chanach. Now, if you're thinking a little bit, what does chanach remind you of? Especially this time of year as we're approaching Christmas and Hanukkah. Okay, same root. Now, the word chanach does not mean to train or to discipline. It has the idea of dedication, initiation, or inauguration. It, uh, in, the, uh, in an Arabic uh, cognate, it refers to uh, the practice among the Arabs of taking uh, honey or something else and rubbing it on the gums of a newborn baby in order to initiate or inaugurate uh, the, the desire for food in the newborn baby. So it has that idea of initiation or inauguration of something. It is uh, used in just a few passages in the 
uh, Scripture, in the other passages where it is used, it refers to dedicating a house. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 5, it's used in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon dedicated the temple. Uh, it's used in, um, uh, in this primary sense to uh, get something, uh, someone accustomed uh, to doing something. And that is how it's used in the term Hanukkah, because this is a feast of dedication when the uh, temple was rededicated after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes and the, the Syrians. Then when their rule was overthrown by the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt, uh, Judah, Maccabe, Judah Maccabees cleansed the temple, and then they rededicated the temple. And it was a time when they didn't have enough oil uh, for the lamp, and so there was a feast of dedication. It had to go for eight days. They had enough oil to last one day, and yet miraculously, according to the story, the oil uh, continued to burn for the full eight days. But the term Hanukkah refers to that uh, time of dedication of the temple. And so this is the uh, primary sense of the of the meaning of Hanak. And so the parent's role is to create, using that analogy from the uh, use of the uh, Arabic of rubbing the gums to initiate or inaugurate a desire for something. They would use fruit juice or oils or think something like that. And to, to begin training the child to desire food. And so the role of the parent then, by the way this is transferred, is to initiate or inaugurate a course of action in the life of the child. And it, it, it has an ongoing sense because the parent does this through, the, through that period of, of the child's life where they are under the authority of the parents. So the parents set guidelines for the child. This is very important that you train a child or dedicate the child to certain courses of action. For example, from the very beginning, you bring the child to church. You bring the child to Bible class during the week. We've tried several times. I know how difficult this is for a lot of parents. We've tried several times to have nursery available, things of this uh, type, because it's important for parents to initiate this habit pattern into in their children from the very beginning to build these priorities. That's that's your job as a parent. It's never too early to start this kind of training, uh, training related to manners, training related to uh, self-discipline. If you wait until they're five or six years of age, you've really waited too long. These things need to be instilled as soon as possible in the, in the life of the child to initiate that behavior in a particular uh, course of action. So the verse reads, train up a child in the way he should go. And then sec- the second word that's important to understand here is the word child. This isn't a word for an infant or necessarily a young child. It is the word na'ar in the Hebrew, which refers to a child from infancy to adulthood. So in the Jewish context, this would be from uh, birth to the age of 13 when they uh, experienced bar mitzvah and entered into full responsibilities of adulthood. So during that period of time, the parent is to continue to initiate and to train the child. It's never too late. If you didn't get started when they were a year old and you're just realizing your responsibility now and they're eight or nine, now's the time to start. Don't put it off any longer. Uh, the child is to be uh, initiated and in the way he should go. And then the promise is when he is old, he will not, or the, or the result of this generally is that when he is old, he will not uh, depart from this. So this should take place as early as possible, as I said, and it moves the uh, child forward in a particular direction. It sets a particular uh, course up. Then um, the next verse that we see in this particular chapter that's important is down in verse 15. Verse 15. 
And I'm going to see, I had a problem this We have, have had electrical problems this morning, and so, or video problems. So now we go to the second verse in this chapter, which is also important, and it is related to this whole concept of initiating, inaugurating, directing a child in a particular course. Verse uh, 15 states, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Again, this is not a promise. If it were a promise, it would say, if you discipline your child correctly, then you will drive his sin nature trends far from him. We all know that's not true. But it is generally true that if you as a parent study and learn your child to discipline themselves in terms of the trends of their sin nature, then as they grow older, you will have set a course of action and a pattern. Now, they may reject that on their own volition when they go out on their own when they're older, but you have done your job in setting the course or initiating that from the very beginning. But one of the first things we should note in this verse is this: the, the first line. This is what is under contention in our society today. The biblical view is that the child is born as a lovely, cute, little, uh, little, little baby, but he, you know, that, that all he is is a sin nature wrapped in the flesh. And we know what the Bible says about the flesh. And that the heart of that child is, is evil and wicked because he's a sinner. He's fallen. He's spiritually dead. And his whole orientation is towards his just serving his own personal needs. He is born in rebellion against authority, and that is the orientation of every baby's soul to one degree or another because of the principle of, of total depravity and, and uh, human sin. So we're born that way. If a child is left alone without instruction and without direction, then their decision-making process in life, the things they choose to do, is going to go in the path of their trends of their sin nature. And that will manifest itself in a number of different ways. The role of the parent is to teach that child to control the lust patterns of his sin nature and the trends of his sin nature, and eventually to train them spiritually by giving them the gospel and then providing them with the word of God. But the starting point, biblically speaking, is that a child is inherently evil and left to his own resources is going to go in the direction of wickedness and evil and sin nature control, self-absorption, arrogance, and everything else that we talk about in relationship to sin. That's the orientation of the heart of the child. The solution is correction. Now, I would suggest that most of us, when we heard the word correction, thought only in terms of a negative corporal punishment of some type. That's not what the word correction actually means. The basic verb is yasar and the... uh, uh, participial form uh, that we have here, musar, the noun form, denotes correction which results in education. The word is used more often in a positive sense of instruction than a negative sense of corpor- corporal punishment. Okay, it's not negative primarily. It's within an overall context. Of, of training and discipline and instruction. It's related in many cases to the Hebrew word Torah, which is the word normally translated law, but that's kind of a mis, uh, mistranslation in one sense because Torah has the idea of instruction. That's its, its core meaning, is instruction in the way of life and how to live well so that that God is pleased. That's the idea. Torah is instruction. And um, yasar, musar, these are words that emphasize how that instruction is implemented in the life of a child. We see some examples of how it is used in just the first, uh, its first uses in Proverbs. Uh, 
Proverbs 1-2 says the purpose of Proverbs from the father teaching the son is to know wisdom and instruction. Fathers, this is your responsibility as a parent is to teach wisdom, to train your children in terms of biblical truth and biblical wisdom. They are to know wisdom and instruction. Now, wisdom, as we've seen, is a biblical uh, or the Hebrew term chokhmah, which isn't the concept that comes out of Greek philosophy. Often, as Westerners, we think of wisdom as as abstract philosophical thought. But in the Hebrew mind, wisdom is a skill at doing something. It is, in this context, it's skill at living. It's being able to live life skillfully, to, to know how to make good decisions once the child is out on their own how they can live in a way that avoids the traps of life, the snares of life, and so they can go forward successfully and do well in their education, do well in their jobs, do well in their marriages, well in their families, training them in how to handle money, how to handle temptation, how to handle uh, different circumstances and situations in life, how to handle uh, work and the responsibilities of work and labor. So the purpose of the father is to train children to know wisdom, that is how to live skillfully, and instruction. So instruction is this word, musar. It involves its discipline in one sense, but discipline, we often think of it as the negative in terms of chastisement, but discipline is almost always has a positive sense. If you are going to engage in athletics... You have to discipline yourself in terms of your schedule and your physical training. That's a positive thing. There's no sense there if you're, you're a well-disciplined athlete. There's not a sense there in that word of chastisement. It is control and it is focused on achieving an objective. That's the idea, the primary idea. Occasionally, when we get out of line, there needs to be negative consequences. But that's not the primary focus of the term. The primary focus of the term is on the positive control and focus on achieving an objective in the sense of self-discipline and removing the distractions and the negatives from life. So the role of the parent is to teach a child to know wisdom and instruction and to perceive the words of understanding. Uh, that word instruction is this same word that we find for Correction in uh, the rod of correction in Proverbs 22:15. Proverbs 1:3 uses the word again to receive the instruction, musar, the instruction of wisdom. It's not at the negative of chastisement; it's the positive instruction. Proverbs 1:7: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice the contrast here between the wise and the fool. Now, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is the result of living according to the sin nature. Wisdom is the result of living according to the standards of Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine comes into the soul because you respect and fear the Lord, and that's that humble uh, that that humble subordination to the authority of God is the beginning of knowledge. But fools reject that. They're, they're asserting their own authority, their own independence. And so they despise wisdom and instruction. They want to go learn it all themselves. Uh, Proverbs 1.8 uses it, it uses the same word in positive sense again. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. So again, it has that positive sense. But then we see a negative sense in Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. So in the synonymous parallelism in that verse, chastening and correction are synonyms. So here it's a negative. Now, the point I want to make here in this word is that it's not inherently a word that means negative chastisement or punishment. It's a word that involves instruction, which emphasizes primarily the positive, but doesn't leave out the fact that there has to be negative consequences for failure. Now, the other term that is used there in Proverbs 22.15 
it doesn't just say correction will drive it far from him. It says the rod will drive it far from him. Now, the rod is described by the genitive of correction. So it's the corrective rod, but it is the rod that drives it far from him. Now, today we live in an era when the whole concept of corporal punishment is uh, rejected by much of modern uh, society. In fact, over the course of the last uh, 30 or 40 years, there have been a number of different uh, movements uh, internationally by the U.N., to outlaw uh, any kind of physical punishment on the part of parents. Uh, we've seen movements in the last 40 years in many states, mostly northern states, not southern states. It's interesting how you get this divide, but if you look at a map of uh, showing the states that have outlawed, completely outlawed any form of corporal punishment in, in schools, that would be mostly western states and northern states, not the southern block of states, although corporal punishment in the southern block of states has been severely restricted from what it was uh, 30 or 40 years ago. The reason that you have these laws and these movements against this is because modern man has as its core assumption that there's no such thing as sin, Number one. Number two, people are born basically good, not basically evil. So you can just let them naturally follow their own uh, inclinations, and they'll do, be, do basically good things. It, it, all you're going to do if you uh, physically punish them is you're going to abuse them. They've defined that as abuse. The uh, pr- problem is that you do have a number of people who don't know how to appropriately physically discipline their children. Physical discipline of a child is not the first resort for disobedience. It should be towards the end of a disciplinary process. It should not be done out of anger. It should not be done out of uh, hatred or bitterness, which sometimes happens. It needs to be in in an environment of learning and teaching and instruction. Uh, objectivity, where the child understands why he is being uh, punished and what the results are. Now, that may not apply to a one-year-old or a two-year-old. Nothing helps a one- or two-year-old correct their behavior quicker than a quick little, and it doesn't even, it wouldn't even hurt a fly, just a tap on the the butt coming from the parent who knows that um, they're out of line, and at that point they're feeling the rejection of their parent. That upsets them enough. But as they get a little older, then you can explain what it is that's going on and why and what the correction is. It's a process of training. It's not the response uh, of anger. And the idea that you have corporal punishment as legitimate from Scripture is based on, number one, understanding that the basic nature of a child is oriented towards foolishness and towards sin, and that the role of the parent is not to be a friend to the child. You can become a friend of your offspring when they get out of college. Between the time they hit puberty and the time they get out of college, they're probably going to think you're pretty silly or stupid or not too bright, so don't try to be anything at that point other than a parent. But before that, you have to, you're the parent, you're the adult, you're the one who understands right and wrong, and you're the one who's responsible to train that child so that when they reach the age where they leave home, they can live independently and successfully. So this idea of corporal punishment is necessary, and it is not only validated in Scripture, it is uh, instructed in Scripture that this is what parents are to do. Proverbs 10.13, Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Notice again that rod indicates, and here it's used uh, a little bit metaphorically in terms of chastisement, but it is the idea that for the person who lacks understanding, which is the fool, then that which gets his attention is a rod. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son. See, Proverbs teaches that the Lord disciplines a son whom he loves. 
A sign that you love your child is that you are willing to discipline them and chastise them and apply the rod of correction if necessary. If you don't do that, you biblically, you don't love your child because you're operating on your own fantasy that somehow they'll figure out how to be good without your having to hurt yourself by, uh, by spanking them. But that's not what the Bible teaches. He who spares his rod hates his son. Now, this isn't saying that you need to go around uh, whipping your son, spanking your son, your child every time they disobey. That's overusing corporal punishment. There's a time and a place for it, and it's not every day or every act of disobedience. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That's another important aspect. It needs to be at a time when they remember what it is that they have done, and it's applied in a timely manner. Proverbs 23:13 says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. This is for parents who are a little afraid that if they spank their child, then somehow it's going to do irreparable harm. God says, no, it's not going to do irreparable harm. I don't care how much all the liberal uh, parenting guides say that you will uh, harm them if you spank them. God says those people are just liars and living in their own fantasy world. And so you have to decide as a parent whether you're going to operate on God's word or on the, the general opinion of a lot of people who don't understand the first thing about human nature, which is that it's basically sinful. Proverbs 23.14 says, You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Now here it's not talking about soteriology. This is not another gospel. You want to avoid going to hell? Beat your kid. That's not what this is saying. <laughs> now that I've got everybody's attention again. All right. It is saying that you will keep him from experiencing all of the horrible consequences of self-indulgent behavior. So if you train them and you appropriately use physical punishment, then the result will be that when they are older, they will not make the kind of decisions that will bring a hell on earth into their life. Uh, Proverbs 26.3 talks about a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. Uh, what does the whip and the bridle do? It restrains behavior from going in an in a, a unproductive, unrestrained manner in order that the objective will be achieved. You put a bridle on a horse, or in this case the donkey, a whip for the horse. It channels their energy in the correct direction. And then Proverbs 29.15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So if you, if you want to make sure that you're going to have a child that grows up as a failure, as self-indulgent and arrogant, then yes, indeed. The first thing you need to do is make a decision that you're never going to spank your children. That's a guarantee of failure for your children when they become adults. It may make you feel good and self-righteous right now, but it's not going to do them any good in the long run. So what we see here in the Scripture, in Proverbs, is that there is a, um, a pattern of instruction here for, from a father to his son on how to be a wise parent in training the children uh, that come along. Now, the Scripture is very clear that the pattern, the, the, the framework for training for children is in the home, and this goes back to the Mosaic Law, and we'll come back to that Next week, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, training, though, is God's business in our life. That's, there's always these comparisons between the discipline of the Lord and the chastisement of the Lord. Leviticus 26 uses that word several times as God chastises the children of Israel, that negative punishment. His, it's a form of love towards the object of God's of God's love. And same thing is true of a parent. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And whom you love as a parent, you need to also uh, chasten. There is a place for punishment. This is seen ultimately at the cross, where God punishes not us for our sin, but punishment has to take place 
So that punishment, that judicial punishment, is laid out on Jesus Christ at the cross. It was a horrible thing. But as a father, he punished his child instead of everyone else. He punished his son instead of every human being for the sin of the world. This whole concept of punishment is inherent in the way God has structured and built human society and human beings, and all of it works together and and is ultimately seen in that work of God's judgment on Christ on the cross, that disobedience requires punishment. And if you as a parent choose to go follow the path of uh, modern parenting guidance, then that at its very core is also another subtle form of attack on divine justice and on God's uh, role in bringing that punishment on his son on the cross. It is because Christ died in our place on the cross that God's justice is satisfied and we can have salvation as a free gift because the price has been paid with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to get uh, guidance from your word for parents as to how to train children, to initiate, inaugurate their behavior as children so that as they follow the path that is defined by parents, then uh, in most cases as they stay with that path, then when they're old, that is the path they will follow in their adult years. It's the role of parents to train, to teach, to discipline, to correct, and is their role to prepare children their children to function as successful, mature adults. Father, we pray for each of the parents in this congregation for their roles and responsibilities towards their children and that they would seek the counsel of your word to make them better parents and to operate within the framework of reality as you've created it. Father, we're thankful that we have a a salvation that is uh, guaranteed by the fact that punishment a judgment has taken place, that Christ was punished for our sins, that we might not bear that punishment for eternity, and that we can have an eternal salvation and deliverance from that eternal judgment by a simple free gift, by receiving that free gift, by trusting in Christ's work on the cross as the uh, basis for our salvation, that our penalty has been paid, not because we paid it, but because Christ paid it. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would recognize that because of your love, you provided a perfect salvation for us. That perfect salvation uh, took care of all of the judgments for sin and that we can receive that simply by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So right now, right where you sit, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so by simply accepting that free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.